This is episode number 236 with Grant Petty of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Hope you're having a great day. Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. And uh, if you are new to this show, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation to really break down what it takes to build and grow a successful business. We unpack everything. We try and unpack everything that they've learned. So it really helps you shorten the life cycle of you building a successful business. So today's guest, his name is Grant Petty, and he's the co-founder of a company called Black Magic Design. Now, I just can't believe these guys are actually out of Melbourne. It's crazy, you know, because, you know, you look at all of these big companies, you think they're out of the US. Well, Apparently not. Um, so basically, Grant has taken Blackmagic Design from zero, you know, fully bootstrapped, no venture funding, to over $300 million in annual revenue. Now, these guys produce all sorts of camera equipment, and their cameras and equipment have been responsible for 80% of feature films now in the industry. Um, so, you know, their cameras and, and equipment have been used for like 300, uh, The Hobbit, like all of these big movies you could ever imagine. They're all shot and, you know, through Blackmagic Designs equipment. So, you know, out of Melbourne, they've got, you know, they've got quite a few offices around the world now, but based out of Melbourne, Grant's been able to build this incredibly large business, all 100% bootstrapped. So, We're going to find out how he's done it. We're going to find out what the hell, like how can you just take on like industry titans like this? So yeah, you guys are in for a treat. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how'd you get your job? Well, you know, when you found a 
company yourself, then you, you kind of build the job around you. And, and the job changes over time. I mean, you start off doing everything. Yep. But I think that's one of the things that makes founders do well is that if you manage to keep hold of it, because uh, it can be tough to hold on, but um, you sort of know all the tasks required to get something going. And as you become more successful, you can add extra people, you know. Yeah. So tell me about Blackmagic Design, incredible company, like tier one brand, like in the industry. Um, you know, before you started, you were an engineer um, and you would uh, you were frustrated with the TV and film industry. Can you tell us, like, how did this all get conceived? How did it all start? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was a television industry engineer. So I think that's one of the good things. Um, you know, you think about a company's culture. Yeah. And, you know, here I was working in television companies and you work in conjunction with other people. Yeah. And so you're never really doing everything yourself. And so in many ways you're working in the back rooms to make sure that the guys in the edit suites look great. Yes. Um, and so what you, uh, you know, that your role in that is, is part of a team. And I think uh, <clears throat> really to, to make a company that's creative, you know, you're working with a bunch of people, you know, a complex group of people with different skill sets. It's the same model as what I had in television. So in many ways it's been very comfortable making that transition because I'm, uh, I've, you know, I think the uh, power CEO that commands everybody, that's really a very old-fashioned yes. capital-intensive kind of way of running a company where you have power over people. Yes. But if you're running a creative company, then it's actually the other way around. It's upside down. What you've actually got is um, you're there to serve everyone, yes. not just the customers but also all the people. Your job is to enable everyone else to do their thing yes. and get out of the way and let them do it. So it's sort of compatible. It's actually a compatible cultural shift, so it yes. wasn't that difficult to do. So you lead from the back, not from yeah, the front. Yeah, um, kind of both. You know, yeah. You're running all around the place, making sure everyone's got everything they need, but also you've got to look at the bigger picture. How's this all fit together? Well, you know, I mean, really what I was doing was, uh, was a protest against the way the TV industry was where everything was extremely expensive, uh, very badly. One of the one, Essentially, the problem we have in the TV industry is you've got a tech, it's electronic media, right? So you've yep. got complicated technical products that people are using to do creative work. So the problem is the people who make those products often con the customers because they realize they don't know anything about them. So they can make the most outlandish thing, make the most outlandish statements they want to make out of it, you know, and then sell them for a lot of money. And so I felt like all my friends were being ripped off. So... I felt like, and you know, once you'd learned all the products and built, you know, television facilities and things like that, yes. Then you realise after that, the, the role is to how do I go further? How do I, you know, take the next step? Well, the next step is actually to build the products myself because no one else is building them, and then the job is to fix the things that that no one else is fixing and to take the industry where we want to take it. The TV industry was very wrong. It was uh, very ego-driven, very capital-intensive. I wanted to make it. It was controlled by people with essentially the who could get bank loans. It wasn't controlled by the people doing creative work. What I felt like is if the equipment was cheaper, yes. we could make the equipment more affordable. If you could afford to buy that with your wage, you could buy the equipment, do the work, and just choose that as a medium to work in. Then you could chain, you know, you could you could do the creative work yourself. So essentially, like what you're doing here with the cameras and things you have, yes, um, you know, this is what my dream was. And so you start off by thinking, okay, I've got to change an industry. The industry is wrong. Only people from within an industry that can really understand what's wrong with it. Then you go, okay, well, let's change that. And so that's what the company's role's been, just to fix a whole industry. And then we have to do everything. We have to fix everything. So, you know, the sales channels, I mean, I had to learn how all that stuff worked. Yes. The people in, off a lot of manufacturers in this industry are extremely hostile and very nasty and commission-based sales guys, all this stuff. So it was quite a, a difficult thing to do. I mean, you, you, yeah, but you want big goals, right? Otherwise, yeah. it's not interesting. It's just a, I'm not a market segment guy. I'm like, yeah. let's, let's make the world different, you know, yes. and hope, you know, obviously, hopefully better. Yes. That, that was my thing. So tell me, Grant, like what was the first product? 
how did you start and how did you fund because this stuff isn't cheap to produce like the prototypes everything like mm. like t- talk to me how the hell did you do this because yeah, i mean it was back, it yeah. was difficult i think um you know when you start out i mean it's refreshing you start off 100 incompetent right yeah. i mean you don't actually know anything i'm coming from another industry now i've got to build something and how do you yeah. do that yeah. so you look at it and you go well i don't know really what i'm doing but i do know the thing i need to make so you just get going and you just build it um yeah. And so the first product we had was a capture card. It plugged into a computer yep. and it captured you know, high-quality video on and out. Now, you know, I'm thinking about how to solve problems in industry and a friend of mine bought a scanner and had Photoshop with it and I realised, hang on a second, this is a publishing industry tool but it's more powerful than the paint systems that we use in television and they're dedicated you know, boxes. So I thought, well, hang on a second, this, there's a whole publishing industry there. So what's that like? So you start looking at magazines and realise, well, there's colour correction, there's, re, you know, there's retouching, there's, there's design, everything, all this stuff is, is there. That world is completely isolated from the TV industry world, which was quite a different industry with different people. But they're the same. The work they're doing is actually the same. The mediums are different, but there's no reason why you couldn't use publishing tools in television. That meant basically getting on the computers properly. I mean, there had been computer-based systems. Yes. And we bought our systems over a million dollars on a, on a silicon graphics computer. That was extremely expensive. That's just the same business model with a different thing. I mean, instead of it being a big box of custom electronics, it's a giant expensive computer. There's really no difference to the business model. I realized what we need to do is change the business of television, not just change the products in television. So by making a low cost capture card, I could plug inside the machine, now any Mac could do it. I mean, I had a lot of heat from doing a Mac product. This is the late 90s, right? Apple wasn't in a good position in those days. Yeah. Everyone's like, you insane? But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but all these engineers run off and build Windows products. But in fact, it's the Mac that the designers are using. Yes. So you should tailor the product to the customers. You know, that's, for some reason, it's like a basic fundamental problem. Make your product easier to buy, make it desirable. Well, who are you trying to target? You're trying to get creative people into the TV industry and empower them, right? So if you don't make a product suitable for them, then it's just idiotic. I mean, what you make is some engineering tool and that doesn't solve the problem. The problem is how do I get a designer to work in the TV industry, make it more affordable so they can actually build their own businesses? Well, it's a low-cost capture card plugged into a Mac and then they can use the design tools that they already use. And so this is the kind of thing now... As far as the funding part of that question, well, you know, you sort of approach some banks and things and you quickly realise that what you're trying to do, you can't prove is going to succeed. I mean, you're going to change an industry. I mean, who does that? Yeah. At the time, I was just young, so you didn't know any better. To me, the industry just seemed wrong, so it should be this way. You're not trying to change anything. You're just trying to, you know, do the, you know, the thing that works or seems like it should be right. Yeah. Um, so you just get to work doing that. So the problem is everyone I interacted with there's no way in hell they're going to fund something or help you in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. They continually bring you down all the time. Like, next day people coming out where I was working and just, like, say all this negative stuff. I'm like, did you just come out to say negative stuff? Like, there's nothing in this conversation. Like, so I think, you know, you just sort of think, well, yeah, but this seems so clear to me. I think it's the clarity of what you think needs to be done and you just focus on that. So you just spend every cent you have. I mean, I remember counting out literally coins to pay my car registration. Yeah. You know, I remember almost getting a product going and the post-production company we were working out the back of burnt down and the fronts all smashed. You know, the, the building next door burnt down over in South Melbourne and smashed all the fronts. So you just almost have a product and you get there on Sunday morning because it burnt down on Saturday night and there's smoke drifting out of the building. You're like, oh, my God, what now? Like, what else can go wrong? It's an amazing number of things that can go wrong. But at the same time, you appreciate it when things go well because of all that. So you just have to make it happen. And, and, and essentially, it's an evolutionary process. You either make it happen or it won't exist. So if it exists, it means you manage to do it. You manage to pull it off. 
So you started with the capture card and then how did you bring other products into the fold? And, and because, yeah, like you guys, you guys do a lot of, like you, you, you're, like I said, you're a leader in the space and disrupting the space. So like how long did it take before you got profitable? Um, we were always profitable right from the start. I mean, you contain you did that your strategically? costs. Well, you contain your costs within your income. If you don't, you die instantaneously. Yeah. When you start off from nothing, you don't have credit. So you can't spend, if you've got $10, you can't spend 11 <laughs> So you just cannot. Like, yeah. it's not there. Like, yeah. it physically isn't there. I went, like, I remember a whole week I went one time with almost not eating. I just had rice. I boiled rice and, you know, I still had some rice. Wow. Because I just worked out I needed to buy some components. The components came in a tray. There were six of them. So I could build a run of six boards. Five of them were damaged. I had to yell at the supplier. I think he used a bad language and the supplier Tell them, oh, you didn't have to use the bad language. I said, yes, I did have to use bad language because you weren't going to fix them. You dropped these in your warehouse and damaged the pins and, you know, you weren't going to, this was going to screw us up. You know, like it, it's incredibly difficult. And so you just literally don't have the money you don't have. So, you know, you talk about funding. What we're actually doing is you're funding it from sales. You're building something and then selling it. It's maybe not the best thing in the world, but it does solve someone's problem. And it does solve their needs. You know, your mind might be 10 or 20 years ahead of that, but you know that's the next step and you just do the next step and you get the money coming in and you just you just work it through. And that's that's really the goal. So you just have no choice. Otherwise, you will absolutely fail. Remember, you're starting with failure. Yeah. What you're trying to do is find a, a, a crack of success in just a wall of failure all in front of you. And if you can get through that, and that's, you know, you just got to keep hunting until you find the crack of, you know, and you just break through and then you'll pull it off. There's just, I mean, there's simply no choice. I mean, no one's going to fund something that's different to the point where, it's unacceptably different. And what I've noticed about the business world as we get bigger is that they don't handle anything that's different. They cannot understand it. I think one of the problems that comes down to money, I mean, money's a tool that people use to interact with each other. Like you didn't spend your day hunting for food. Neither did I. You know, we do other things and it gives us the money we need to buy food. Yes. Money's the tool we use to interact with each other. You couldn't have cities and things without it. So it's great. The problem is when money starts getting made as the centre of everything and then we serve the money. That's a f- reversal and money now becomes our master, not our tool. And I think that's as we get bigger, we see the business world is obsessed with money and fear. And so what happens is that if that's like that term disruption you used, which I actually find offensive because what are you disrupting? You're disrupting the money. That People are creative. People do creative things. That's what they do. That's all we were doing when we started out. You're just doing a lot of creative stuff and you think, oh, this will... This will work out. Yeah, I'm creative in a focused way that's going to solve a person's problem and I've got a product hopefully that I'll be able to build from that creativity and sell to them. Yes. I've got to build a few at a time and get the money in and then build another yeah. few. But I'm not disrupting anything. I'm trying to survive and I'm trying to solve a problem for people. But disruption is not the correct word. That's why I find that word either confusing or offensive because what you're disrupting is money. But that's our tool. It's not our master. You know? I see. So... Um, when was it kind of, how long did it take before you really felt when you got to that stage where it's like, I'm onto something, um, like we're, 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 it, it's a tipping point. When did you hit that tipping point where things got easy, easier, um, easier? Like, cause, um, you know, like our company, media company, hundred percent bootstrap too. Mm, we haven't yeah. raised any capital, um, you know, we're not in the hundreds of millions of annual revenue, but, you know, in the millions. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it it doesn't get easier, I agree. But, you know, at the same time, you, you can you can survive comfortably. Mm. Like when did it get to that stage for you? 
I think there's probably two steps. I feel like the first step, and it's a good question because I haven't quite thought about it before because you're just always focused on the next yeah. thing. But I think there's probably two steps of survival. I think the first step is when you can actually pay yourself something. I remember for years, you know, um, a few of us were going for years with no money wow. or just enough to pay my rent and some food. I remember putting, you know, it shows you how things have changed, but $10 for dinner, $5 for lunch and literally going to a bank. I, had, I threw away my ATM card or cut it up so I didn't have an ATM card. I'd put some money in my account. I'd go to the bank, take out 5 and $10 note for each day. So the $5 was for lunch, $10 was for dinner, put them out seven days and my coins I'd put in a bucket. At the end of, on the Sunday, I'd see if I could go watch a movie or something with the surplus money. There's no way you could get lunch dinner for $10 now, but that was, you know, what you could do. And that was my budget, you know, and, and you just, you know, lived off that for quite a while until you get finally get enough revenue. Because remember, you know, with us, we're paying for parts. Yeah, so you bring out a new model. It's very capital intensive business. Yeah, exactly. That's why and, I find it so wanna, interesting. You've got and you to want to get that. an engineer, like maybe an extra yeah. engineer. So I remember that one of the first engineers we hired, we literally get every cent we had, we spent on him to pay his wage because engineers aren't cheap. And so we're getting nothing. We're giving literally everything we have to this hardware engineer and then you get another one and another one and you start to yeah. keep up with the kind of the product changes you need to do but you're also trying to buy parts and every time you bring out a new model then you need a huge amount of parts to build yeah. those models more skews it becomes, yeah you yeah. never seem to have enough but i think the point where you could introduce products or new products and also pay yourself i think is the first survival step and how long did that take you oh, from probably, start probably a couple of years yeah probably a couple of years before i actually could start paying myself yep um i think that's that's it the second step is uh, much harder, and I think that's we still haven't achieved that. That's where you can sort of take your place in the world from a point of view of do people understand what you're trying to do? Like, well, I mean, many, you know, look, in many ways, I think we have achieved that. I mean, the fact that we're here talking, yeah, it's sort of like what you find is when you're trying to do something new. Remember this whole disruption thing? Yeah, you get a wave of hatred. I mean, you know, I'm just I'm changing the TV industry. Now, in my mind, I'm just allowing a whole bunch of people to move into an industry that could never do that before. But the people that are in it that have done well, some of them acted very badly. And I'm a trade show saying, yeah, but you don't understand. You're the senior people in this industry. The industry is going to get much bigger and then you guys will be running facilities and doing all sorts of things. You've got the experience of my line at the time was you know how to make a client happy. The younger guys can operate the tool, but you actually know how to do the job and actually make care of the client and all that stuff. And that's what's happened. All the, all the people that were in that industry have now become the senior people who are running companies and things like that. But I think what happened is you just get this rejection, waves and waves of rejection from the industry that's there. But I was trying to empower people to come into it anyway, so I didn't worry about that. But there was just waves of this, everything doing wrong, you make crap, you guys are, you know, just the worst stuff, you know, mm. particularly from other manufacturers, of course. And it does happen to a certain degree on some things still, but my feeling is once you get through that and once those new product lines and the, and the things you're doing are accepted, um, that's kind of a second wave of solo where now everyone goes, okay, now we the industry's changed and you are a major player in it and that makes sort of gives you uh, what would you call some credibility from the point of view that you're a viable supplier to people. You know, we supplied all the major broadcast networks around the world and and obviously the feature films and all these other things. So these were some of the last things to come on, but um, maybe that's where some of the acquisitions have helped, I, I guess. Yeah. But it's, maybe it's a respect-based thing where you can actually, you're able to survive in the market you know, you've created a market, but also it has had some effect on the markets that's there and people sort of now accept you, I think, was probably that second stage of survival. So when you do a new product, people notice it. You can get, uh, when you do some new technology, they notice it and the marketing machine gets easier. There's probably, it's, it's, it's a complicated long answer, I guess, but that's kind of my feeling. There's two major steps. 
And step two, I'm <coughs> curious, how long do you think that really took? Because I think in today's age, people just want things now. They want things mm. faster. They're not prepared. Like, you know, one of my mentors, he says to me that to build anything of true worth and significance, it takes at least seven to ten years. And I'm just yeah, curious right. how long did it take to build, you know, Black Magic Design, be a tier one brand, you know, industry leader um, to to produce, you know, Game of Thrones, you know, all these exceptional films and TV shows. How long did that take, would you say? Well, I think one of the good things about some of these is, of course, when we acquired, we've done seven acquisitions and, yeah. and as we've acquired some companies, they've, like DaVinci Resolve, for example, is the one that's used in Los Angeles for the, most of the film. And so when we acquired that company, we essentially acquired Their those credibility. clients. But, of course, yeah. at the time you go, oh, my God, you guys have bought them. It's going to be horribly wrong. And, of course, within a year they realised everyone was super happy and realised what we'd done and we'd actually done what we said we would. And it comes down to it. I think products come and go, but trust you know, is uh, much longer term. And I think he's right. It does take about seven to ten years. For us, it's different product lines. Like, yeah, you know, one product breeds another. You start with the capture card and then you say, oh, we've got monitoring problems. So, well, let's solve that. Yep. Oh, now we've got a problem with this. Let's solve that. And then we bought DaVinci wanted to try and get more people doing colour correction because we understand what it does. Only the hiring facilities could really do it properly. Oh, but the cameras aren't up to it. You know, the digital film camera is really expensive, but cheap video cameras are there, but they're cheap, but they clip everything off and you can't do much creatively with the image. So what do you need to do? So that breeds cameras, you know, but each product line you move into, you get a wall of hostility because, you know, some people like for cameras, for example, some people have just bought a camera. That's all they are. They're not really, their only claim to being, you know, working in the TV industry is they've bought a camera. When you suddenly make those cameras more affordable, you're not concerned about that guy. You're concerned about the people you're going to allow to get into the TV industry or the film industry. But, of course, the old guard, some of them, can be quite feral. So it takes time uh, before people realise, oh, no, these guys are making a good product and everything. And, and often your first product or two is just, you know, it, it serves a very niche uh, sort of task and it's not like, you know, the best product ever. You're going to go from zero to 1,000 kilometres an hour yeah. instantaneously. You've got to step through a few steps. So we, you know, we found a few things that that we could fix and sort out um, before we, you know, brought what to we're doing. Real sweet. Yeah, yeah, and you let the customers pull you along a little bit as well. But it does take time. I mean, you get walls of hostility, but some people love you, yeah. and over time, more people love you, and the walls of hostility start to fade away. Until then, you got people now pulling you in different directions, and you know, you become more collaborative, and you, you go into a show now, and you meeting up with people you've seen before, and you're chatting to them about different things, and. You know, like it's funny when I go to a trade show and you've actually got to sell something to someone because they just want to know about a product. I'm like, oh, but I really want to just have a chat, you know, because yeah. that's what you're doing. And then, you know, you do find now that you're sort of accepted. But it, it does take a long time and each product line for us is different. So we can introduce a new product line to sort something out and suddenly we get this wall of hostility, but everything else is humming along nicely. Um, so we've got these overlapping seven to ten year timelines that are kind of happening simultaneously depending on what we're doing, you know. Yeah, I see. And and tell, talk to me around kind of um, when do you know when to try and solve that next thing or add, you know, the next line, product line or, or add the next skew because that can be um, – it can be co- quite cost intensive but then also it's it's fun. And, and I think as, as a, a creative yourself, it can get really fun to just create this new thing and do this yeah. and do that. And But sometimes you, you, can, you can lose focus mm-hmm. and um, – the traction that you built with this one and then you got this new one and then you, this one's going down you know I'm going this like ha, yeah. ha, you and you've got you've done this for a long time what 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 piece of advice would you share there and how you've navigated between knowing when to launch this new product line or knowing when to get this one right and, yeah. and wait 
you've got to try and create a, a climate of education and, and, no, and you've got to lim- try and eliminate fear. The, the fundamental difficulty you'll always have is to do anything great needs more than one person. The problem is um, each one of those people has to be different to each other. You can't have five of the same person. You've got to have you know, a user interface guy and a software engineer, hardware engineer, industrial design. Now, industrial design alone has got stylists and then there's mechanical, thermal, EMC, you've got all these different types of people. People just do finish, you know, the finishes, you know, on the surface finishes and things like that, CAD guys, all this. So you got, you could have like, you know, for a product, we could have 150 people working on a product. Wow. Depending what, what it is, even more. And so how do you get all those people to work together without killing each other? Mm-hmm. And the worst thing is the better they are, the more disconnected from they are as far as their perspectives, you know. Yep. You see it in the broad economy as economies get big and more complex. How's a hairdresser understand what a mining magnate's dealing with or a, you know, a, a, a graphic designer understand what a, you know, an accountant's dealing with. I mean, they're just such different industries. And as everyone gets better at what they do, people move apart. Um, so the difficulty is how do you get all these people working together? And the trick is to, to try and get that to do that. So if you can try and do amazing products, products that are a little bit beyond what everyone can do, not in a killer way, but in a way that's actually a bit of a stretch and, and an exciting way too. You think, wow, this product's actually quite exciting. People get excited about that product, but they also understand that they need each other because I need a great user interface on that product. So the software guy's quite happy that the user interface guy has done such good work and the, and the, um, and the, and the user interface guy's like amazed that he's made that my user interface animate, you know, by writing code behind it. So I think the trick is to try and do extraordinary things if you can. And, uh, but at the same time, try and get all these people working together and create a system that's as flexible as it possibly can be. Like if things don't quite work the right way, be able to change in real time. Nothing, we try to eliminate all planning here as far as... Really? Yeah, because planning is rigid. So what you want to do is it'd be capability-based. You want to try things, improve your capabilities, and then go, okay, what's next? Then you can respond extremely quickly. So the long-term planning is people's skills and the capabilities we have. Yes. And some of the systems and processes. You know, we consume over a million parts a day. Yeah, That's wow. not something you can do without systems, but your systems are designed to, um, to back flexibility. Then you can then instantaneously move on something really quickly. Um, and that means that nobody's being bogged down with process as far as defining what they do. They're completely free to do what needs to be done to make things the way they need to go. But the systems are then to support them in that, not to control them. Yes. And it's a different way of thinking and it's not very common. We're swamped with data and spreadsheets and all this crap. We don't use any of that stuff. We don't do market research. We don't do any of this stuff. We just, um, you know, you talk to someone and they're a person. They're not a spreadsheet cell or a, a big data thing you know they're a person and i think one of the problems we've got these days is that people are trying to turn everyone into data they're people just see people as people and then you'll work out what to do with them yeah people will amaze you i think that we're in a somewhat dictatorial environment uh, software engineers and other people like that are creating algorithms that control people you know like people talk about artificial intelligence and how it could be horrible that's what we have now we have large bureaucracies and companies and government who use data to decide what policies are to then control people. That's the worst of possible situation because nobody's seen for who they are. And that's why people are getting antsy and protesting. So maybe artificial intelligence will actually save us because you can have artificial intelligence actually knowing you versus just you being a bunch of data based on something, you know. So I think you've got to see people for what they are and then move quickly. The other have just everything is designed to support people to change direction, change you know things quickly. Never blame anyone for anything. If something goes wrong, people didn't you know, come to work wanting to do things wrong. I mean, I have met some very, very bad people who did literally come to work to do the most destructive damage they possibly can, but they're extremely rare. 
when it comes down to people will impress you, have faith in people, trust people, empower them, make sure the people are actually making decisions, no hierarchy above them, and make sure all your systems back there what they need to do and let them go, get out of their way. They'll blow your minds. People will absolutely amaze you. People are incredible. Let them be incredible. So when it comes to, I'm curious, like let's say, like let's say there is no planning. How do you know what product line? You just let people kind of, like you, you build teams, like exceptional teams. And, we have, we have yeah. a product plan, but it's yep. literally less than a page. It has to be less than a page. Yes. And most of that's actually the video standards that supports. Yep. It's pretty clear what a product is. There's a person who's responsible for that product. Yes. They are the product plan, not a document. One yes. of the problems that happens with planning is the document becomes the product, not the product itself. And I've we worked, you know, we've got OEMs and we work with other companies and they have sometimes elaborate plans, but they always fail because the problem is complexity. Complexity has bugs hidden in it. Anything with complexity has bugs in it. A plan is actually generally complex. So simplify that down to literally a very small amount and go, what are we building here? Do we know what we're building? Okay, your responsibility is to know what it is we're building. You interact with anyone you need to know or talk with and you become the human plan. You're the person who takes the spirit of that product with you and you're the person who has to help it, you know, mother hen it like a child, right? I mean, you're actually constructing this product. So that's the way we do it. A person is responsible for that product and, and we have a very short definition of what it is, but generally it's 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 the person. Sometimes we'll do something more elaborate, like we were building a control panel, which I think is behind me, and we had to sort of work out what controls we wanted on it. Yeah. So we thought about all the controls we'd like to have and we put them in a priority order and then worked out how many could we fit and, okay, that's the stuff that goes in. Yeah, so we do that kind of thing. Um, you know, obviously the, the systems and bills of materials, the parts, and all these other things, but not this like elaborate, complex plan. We know what we're building. Let's just get to build, you know, work and, and do it, and then let the guys be free to do it. And it changes around. Well, it, it'll change around a bit, and we just keep discussing. It's lots and lots of conversations, but no very, very minimal structure that controls people's actions. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about systems that support people's creativity and what they need to do that don't control their actions, otherwise they'll automatically do things. And that's one way you hire people. You hire people for their brain. People are creative, right? I mean, we're the only species that can create things. I mean, you've got monkeys poking sticks at things. That's not really creativity. You can't monetize a stick and a monkey. Well, maybe you can. Circuses do. <laughs> you know. But when it comes down to it, we are creative, and that's what makes us unique as a species. So you've got to foster that. Um, also, it's more, it, it's uh, much more dignified as a uh, way for people to treat each other too. So, And it's, it's fun. Yeah, it, that, that's what it's all about, like just having fun, like mm. doing work you're passionate about and just, just having fun. It's so, really fun. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, um, you, you've done seven acquisitions uh, and where were, like you don't have to t- talk me through all of them, but um, how, how big now is, is Blackmagic Design and, and the company? How many staff? And about a thousand staff, I think. Thousand staff, the and there's only about 350 here. We've got yep. engineering facilities in America, multiple. Yep. Singapore, UK, and uh, Japan, and yep. also we've got sales offices in different countries. So you know, it's quite spread out. Factories in different places. We've got three factories. Um, yep. It's all spread out a bit. Um, you go where people are. Yep. Um, so. You know, yeah, you know, it, it. you never intended to get this big, but at the same time, you're always blown away by the people that are here. I mean, it's it's funny when you're sitting in a meeting and you're talking about some problem and you do tend to try and describe the world of what we need to be doing in forms of problems, not solutions, because otherwise you can't use other people's brains. Mm. But when you see people rip into a problem and start discussing stuff, it's like sometimes it's shocking when you realize the talent you have in a room. It's quite 
surprising, but it's but that's what's fun about it because you don't actually know what's going to happen when you come to work every day. But you know, there's a whole bunch of things we're going to try and struggle with and, and tackle. Um, what's going to happen? But everything we're doing is really a foundation for the next things that we're doing. So what we're doing now is so important because it's going to allow us to then do the next thing. So everyone in this company is essential. Most people in the company are actually working on the future, working on things that we will be, not so much day to day. Maintain this status quo. Yeah, we try yeah. to minimise the number of people on day to day. Again, planning. Yeah. You know, if that's um, somewhat automated and you know, and it's simplified down, you have less bureaucrats doing bureaucracy type things, which control people's actions. It's more like a few people are actually supporting what we're doing, and then most people are working on the future. You know, that's how I define how creative we are. If you're doing something on the future, then you're actually contributing something creative, which will have benefits. If you're just doing day-to-day spreadsheet work, like I hate spreadsheets. Yes. Because they're just so immediate. They divide people. Spreadsheet, everyone has their own bit of data that's different to someone else's and it's, you know, divides people and it's the present and it's immediately out of date once you've finished it. Whereas um, it, it also indicates a systems failure. You have failures in your systems that you have to use, people have to use spreadsheets to get around. So that's, you know, that's the, uh, you know, you're just trying to, keep it all in the future all the time. So when it comes to, uh, uh, like, I, I find it quite interesting. You're, you're very, very passionate about being a creative, um, but you still are the CEO of the company. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of kind of operational stuff that maybe you're not, is it, am I safe to say you're probably not as passionate about the operational side of things or? Um, well, you've, you've got to, you've got to organize yourself. I, the company's uh, fairly automated and it runs on software that I've written. So I've personally written all the software that runs the company itself. That way we don't have to have a whole lot of operational people. So I know exactly what the operations are because it's, it's um, running through my code. So, so Sorry, what do you mean by that? I don't understand. Well, everything, you know. <laughs> if, we, um, if, a, if a reseller orders a product from us yes. or a customer orders some products, that immediately flows into the factory and if they don't have stock, they'll build it. So within five minutes, they could actually be building a product that just got ordered before a sales office even knows. Um, oh. When that product is built, it'll automatically order all the parts for it. We could be shipping stuff in containers or air freight or wherever. You know, like this whole system is running on code that I've written. So, you know, you know intimately what's going on and you can adapt, you know, like by running code ahead of some change you need to be doing. It can be a little slower sometimes if you know, you're busy and there's a bit to do. Yes. But a lot of these things, you know, you just tweak and, and change things as yeah. you go. Wow, that's interesting. So. So then would you say that you spend most of your time speaking to your team, just just doing kind of visionary stuff, looking at the new products and just doing fun stuff mainly? Like, not mainly, but um, yeah, it's like, it sounds to a, like. To a certain degree, like yeah. if, you've, if you, you know, you are, uh, I mean, you know, like you, you could do a spreadsheet to work something out, for example, and it might take you, you know, a couple of hours to do. Now you might spend two days on code to do the same function, but then you've automated it and that'll work forever. And as you scale, that scales up with you. I think that, you know, in the future, and this really applies to very young people, like there's kids in school now are learning how to code. I don't think CEOs should be able to be CEOs unless they can code. If you can't code, you can't think. So you can't understand systems and you can't understand complexity. So it just becomes an ego dominance hierarchy based thing where you're just trying to control people and make them make you wealthy and powerful. That's not the future of business. The future of business is actually grouping people together. In fact, what business was supposed to be collections of people making things beyond what one person can do. You have a cluster of brains and are able to do something that's beyond the capabilities of individuals. Um, that's what business is really supposed to do, and that, that funds itself because it's you know that the results of those teams of people hopefully makes money. But unfortunately, the the power to pull us back to a land-based sort of animalistic 
based economy is always there. It's always very strong. You can, you can never refute the truth of owning land and making income from it. Where the creative thing is actually fairly new. It's only been, you know, industrial revolution kind yeah. of enabled, right? When machines started making products, design also became an industry. I think everyone underestimated what happened during the industrial revolution. To me, that's also when design kicked off mm. because the machines make the products. Now the craftsmanship is actually in the design of products, which are then mass produced, we can all have them. It's quite a simple model. Um, it's the intangible bit appeared at the same time as the tangible bit, which is the factory, you know? So I think what's interesting is no one's really understood that. So to me, um, that's, it's all about creativity. So if I need to do something new, then okay, it'll take me two days to do some code to do it. But what I end up having is something that scales with me and it's there forever versus a spreadsheet that's pretty much dead the minute I've finished it. And so that's the future of business. That's the way things will work. You don't need to really build an artificial intelligence to run a company if you can think through what an artificial intelligence would decide to do and then just do what it would decide to do. It's not that hard. We're also intelligent. We're not, you know, stupid. So just, you know, understand what intelligence is. Try to make your company intelligent and then think about what you need to be doing. What would an artificial intelligence decide to do if it was running your business? And just write code to do that. And then that'll just happen. And then you get the benefits of artificial intelligence without all the hassle of like, you know, thousands of engineers trying to create something that thinks and it's probably just going to try and kill you anyway. So, you know, what's the point? They just argue with you like kids do. You know, I've already created kids. You know, they argue with you. Last thing I need is some old powerful robot thing with laser eyes coming at me. I've got enough things to deal with. <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, like, but that's the thing. So, um, yeah, you know, you need, people need to be better. CEOs don't really have to know much. I think the thing about CEOs, which I find interesting is, or the business world, and this is, I mean, this is a theory, and it sounds somewhat pessimistic, I suppose, but they seem to be a bunch of people that know the rules. They don't seem to be able to create anything. They, um, and if you question the rules, they think you don't know what you're talking about. But like, well, so nothing can be changed. Everything's rigid. I mean, you know, 150, 130 years ago, China was a very rigid society. Mm. And then Europeans come floating along and destroyed the country. I mean, what happened to China was disgraceful, but it was the rigidity and the thinking there that, caused problems with them being able to adapt to what was going on. And they went through years of hell. I mean, a lot of people got killed and all kinds of chaos. Now they've got a very flexible thinking and they've burned up the industrial world, you know, in a very short period of time, you know, and I don't think anyone's really understood. This is not just a cheap labor country. There's a whole new way of thinking and a flexibility of thinking, a focus on actually the product and, and all these sort of healthy ways of thinking about things. And that's created enormous success for them. And there's stuff to be learned. And I think everyone's just, just, oh, it's just dismissing it as a, as a cheap labor country. But the same thing happened in Japan, you know, in the 90s, where people are, oh, Japan, cheap labor. It's like, well, no, hang on. They'd, they'd revolutionized a whole bunch of uh, manufacturing processes and things like that. And then people learn from that. So I think there's a lot to learn from different cultures. And, that, uh, and what I find now in the Western world is that business culture has become so rigid and so inflexible. And it's like I joke and say, you know, business people are so rigid in the way they think. They seem to be able to... Uh, move data around, but they're not able to compute. So, like, it's like they're not tearing complete, you know, like they're unable to, they're not complete people. Um, and if you question the rules, they know you obviously don't know. So, it's a bit strange world of, of hardcore rules, and the rules get more complex all the time. And they've mastered that. And so, they have their position in this dominant hierarchy that of power based on understanding the way things work. And, oh, you know, if you're a creative person, well, then you can get destroyed by that because they don't allow you to exist. And so the question for me is, is a healthy society one in which multiple people can be creative and they can succeed and they can exist as being different but also be productive? Like how 
many cultures can you have in a country? Is it just the business culture, the way it works? And if you're not part of that, you get destroyed by it? Because I've seen a hostility come at me from the business world that's un, un, unexplainable. A hostility, where's the, where's the negative? The hostility, it's almost like a violence to what we're doing. You know, people will be surprised by it, but then within no time they're criticising heavily what we're doing and it's and it's uh like why what are they saying well it's it's complex but it mostly it's in simple terms it seems to be very metrics driven it's like they just seem to recurring revenue you know profit per square foot gross margins all these things they're yeah. all just sort of metrics but you know in communism systems they killed tens of millions of people because some dude who was powerfully connected within an office somewhere deciding based on metrics what the farming policy should be and meanwhile on the, on the ground it didn't work and thousands of people millions of people died and we've kind of got the same thing. The finance markets just to simplify all these companies down to a bunch of metrics. They increase the complexity of accounting standards to, to give them more information or what they think is giving them more information. What they're actually doing is destroying the creativity in businesses because everyone's terrified to make the metrics look bad. So they game the metrics. Mm. So you see scandals all the time where people get, there's a scandal. Well, what do you think? If you focus on just metrics, people are going to try and hit the metrics. But then what they're doing is gaming the metrics. Um, you force them to do that. So you get a systems failure, and that's what the global financial crisis was. It was a systems failure. What amazes me is that um, they don't understand we've got a world where it's seemed to be okay to let some of the, industry, the older industries, so to speak, disappear, but the very thing we now need, which is new types of creativity, is, is not able to really grow within the structures that we have because they're quite uh, hostile to people who try to do things in a different way. So while you can get, you know, you see success stories of startups who get funding and everything like that, They've got to be very, very compatible with the way people will fund. What happens if you do something that is not understood? How well would you get funding for something that people can't understand? You don't. It simply doesn't happen. So unless you bootstrap it and you have enormous fanaticism to get that going, then it's crushed. And so what you have is new industries can't blossom to replace the old industries. So you eventually just get more unemployed people and more industry support. And in the end, the government has to step in. So you kind of evolve into somewhat complicated mashup communist thing that doesn't really kind of work and it just becomes a mess and everyone's at each other everyone's fighting and complaining and you know prime ministers get flipped out every five minutes most kind of stuff so there's a fighting based world that we don't really feel like we're part of but you can see there's a hostility from that world all the time that's constantly surrounding us so how we survive going forward is you know based on how well we can sort of connect to that world but it's a very confusing strange world that seems to be based on a lot of the opposite principles to what we focus on as some of our core principles. Yeah, so I'm can still you tell working me, out that, you know. Can you tell me about, because I, I find it quite interesting <laughs> um, the way you see the world and and obviously, you know, you must have some, tell me about the, you know, the unique principles that your company runs off Black Magic Design and also around the culture, around how you um, help people do their best work. I think that, um, you know, well, I mean, there's so many principles, but um, a good like example. Some core ones, if you were in in Well, a good example yeah. is, the, you know, the differences of opinion. I mean, I remember I was talking to some MBA guy, which I'm not fans of MBAs. The MBA education is too simplistic and it's not really very sophisticated. It's very pop culture kind of thing, very data-driven, you know, like um, very profit and efficiency-driven, but that's opposite, the opposite of what customers needs, you know. So a good example is someone was saying, oh, so, you know, they asked a question about your inventory and, you know, and, and uh, how many months of inventory? Oh, that's X number of inventory returns a year. That's really great. And I'm like, really? Like, I, I just found it so strange that someone would think of inventory turns as being a parameter that's a desirable metric for the business. Because to me, the, the level of inventory that I want is just enough to make sure that I can deliver immediately to customers because I have stock. But I'm just running out of some things. So if I'm not just running out of things, I don't know what the minimum is. 
So what I'm looking for is a floor that's just enough stock, but just occasionally running out of product. So I know that I'm not overstocked. If I was never running out of product, I might be overstocked at some point, not knowing quite where I am. If I'm running out of product a lot, then that means I'm understocked of products and parts. Mostly it's parts because we turn them into product. But if I'm, there's a point where I'm mostly, almost always in stock, but sometimes not quite, that's the right level of inventory. And it's based on being able to supply product immediately as customers need it on demand. So how quickly can I fulfill what a customer needs? Then I get the opportunity sale of um, actually having a product when someone needs some a product and they can buy it from me. That to me is the correct inventory level. Now it's more complex than just a nine turns a year kind of thing. Yes. But in, you know, that, but that's the world's, that's their metrics. That's the way they work. So what happens of course is that they you end up trying to run your inventory turns up so you de-stock. And we've seen that with our suppliers. We have 52 week lead times on a lot of products, a lot of parts, sorry. Um, now our customers want products in real time. They want it today. So we have to manage that and make sure that we can build products today even when it's a year lead time on a part. So now they've done that because they've done two things. One is they removed all their inventory and said, well, we'll just wait for customers to order it. Then we've got the best inventory turns because we literally don't have any. But then what they also do is they realize, well, hey, maybe we're going to build a factory because it will save money. And if we ever get that capacity, then we can raise our prices. So we'll actually make more money by spending no money. But then everyone else just has to suffer the fact that all the uh, parts prices go up and we can't get enough. And the lead times buy up to 52 or 54 weeks. So you get this calamity that actually ends up happening and the customers are treated terribly, but the guy's metrics look great. So this is the difficulty that we have. We're living in a world where everyone's just seen as metrics and here we are trying to be creative and try to make the customers happy. And, and, you, and you see that dysfunction everywhere. I mean, you go and sit on a tram or a train and you realize the decisions that have been made to run this. The trains are the same speed that they were 100 years ago. Why? I mean, these trains can go faster. <laughs> Nobody cares. Nobody actually has sat there and gone, oh, we want to make it go. They're just administering it working out the least they can spend to make the most amount of money. There's no pride in what they're doing, um, don't care. So it's just the least system they can possibly do. And But we own the trains and what are you going to do? You're going to have to use them. So we just have to be good enough to be politically not savaged, but otherwise we'll do the least amount we can possibly do. And that's the world we live in. And people are pissed about that. They're, not, they're getting really sick of it. So they're wanting more, but the system is so dysfunctional. No one's really at fault. There's no demon here. Everyone loves to blame a you know Donald Trump or something like that but it's not really it's the system it's the way we work together it's, it's you know the tool the, you know the tools we use the way we interact with each other we have to become more sophisticated and think deeper about what we're actually really doing not just trying to pull everything out of the system we can with the least input and in the end you just get minimal of everything we're burning up our our past and our history and consuming it up and we're not building anything you know that's the difficulty you know yeah, so um, can you tell me just a little bit about the culture and, and what, you've, what you've tried to design to, to really foster creativity within your organisation? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we try to do is we try to be product-centric, not hierarchy-based. Yeah. I mean, look, there so are So you guys people, are pretty flat? They're, yeah, there's people in different roles, but we do, you know, we don't have any meetings unless we need to work something out. There's no one wants to be sitting around a boring meeting. unless I waste people's time. So there's no weekly no progress reports, or monthly? Stuff. No, no, no. no, we just all wander from group to group and yeah, it's all the campus here. Yep. We couldn't, uh, it's not Silicon Valley, right? We couldn't, you know, we didn't have the ecosystem around us to support us, so we've created that. Yep. So we've got marketing and photography and translators even and engineers and PCB guys and industrial designers and everything all here in different buildings and we can walk from building to building and, you know, and uh, interact with the people we need to do. And that's what we do. We spend constantly our time moving around between different groups, walking up to people, chatting, and we're all doing that, you know. Yep. Um, so we don't need to really meet. Sometimes we do, like, 
but not very often um, because it just wastes people's time. Most people don't want to be in the meeting, so just don't have them unless there's something to work out. Sometimes you need to get a group together, but most of the time, you know, it's because you've got a bit of paper and you're all drawing something or trying to work it out. Um, And, uh, you know, get out of people's way. Make sure that you support them and and just let them do things. Let them take things to where they might need to go. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about, um, you know, uh, moving decision-making to the coalface, so to speak. Well, why do that? Like, there's a guy at the coalface who's actually working at the coalface. Give him enough information that he needs to let him make the decision because he knows. Make sure your job is to give him the bigger picture so he understands how his interactions or what he's doing interfaces to the rest of the company and the rest of the group so then he has more awareness. I've never met anyone that can't understand. Well, some people have got bad intentions, but mostly of the time I've met people, everyone understands everything. People are smart. You know, they're not... Uh, I don't subscribe to this kind of thing, oh, well, those people are not as smart as those people. Everybody, you know, if they understand the human language, you know, of some kind, they can understand what you're telling them. Um and then everyone can work as a group. And I, and I think there's energy in that group. I, you know, so, you know, I, I think the, I mean, it's a fundamental thing. And, and we never get it right. We're, we're human and yeah. we'll never get it perfect. Of course. Right? There's just some people who culturally will be different to, you know, just won't fit in. And, you know, we're big enough now to move people around if they're not fitting in with some people because, you know, yeah. personalities do great occasionally from time to time. But you just got to keep trying. At least if you keep trying, look, you know, you can't, you can't be bad. You're just not good yet at something. I mean, you just got to keep trying and hope that, you know, whatever problems you suffer from, you can learn from and hopefully, you know, reduce that likelihood of happening and, and be a better person in the future. And my, as I say to my kids, you know, if you're learning something every day, then tomorrow you're smarter. If you're not learning something new every day, then you just, tomorrow you're just older. And I think that if it's all fundamentally about learning, and then we'll just, we'll work it out. I mean, we'll yeah. all, bunch of smart people work it out yeah yeah awesome so look we have to work towards wrapping up grant um a couple of last questions what's kind of exciting to you uh, that you guys are working on to to further you know i won't say the word disrupt i don't insult you but uh further make a dent perhaps in, in this industry and uh where's the best place after that where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and black magic design and, and you guys work as far as what's coming up i think what i'm mostly focused on is, I mean, obviously there's certain products that we're working on all the time, but I think in many ways the longer-term planning is what do we don't know, what do we need to kind of learn, how do we learn it? Often we push ourselves a bit on something to, to learn it. So that's the long-term thing is what's going to happen in the future? Like what do we need to be ready for as far as what do we need to know? What things would we like to try that we might never have even assumed we could? Often people say, oh, we should do this product. I'm like, unless it's really, you know, we can add something to it. There's no point doing it. I don't like to make products that just market settle segment battle some other product. I don't like Coke versus Pepsi sort of stuff. You know, yeah. like I want to do something interesting. So You want the superior. You want yeah, the most and, far superior product. And you do yeah. get a lot of people in the company go, hey, let's bash this product. It's like, what for? Like, even if it's someone who's been nasty to us, it's like, it just doesn't, like, what's the point of that? We don't yeah. waste our time with industry gossip-based products. You know, yeah. let's do something interesting. But you do accumulate sometimes a bunch of ideas and you think, oh, actually, this would be pretty cool now. Maybe we should do this. But my feeling is, what's the things we don't know? That's really what I'm focused on. What is it I don't know? What do I need to confront myself with and then learn from it? Um, and these are the things that we tend to do. And we, I think about that with a lot of the stuff here. What can we do that's a step up that we could try that we haven't done before? And I think that's in many ways the thread for the longer term thinking is what do we need to be in the future? What might we need to be in the future? How do we kind of confront some stuff to learn that now so we can get to that future? And then at that point, the products just became 
you know, things that are possible because of what you're able to do. Mm. So it's the foundation of what you're able to do, how smart you are in different things and what kind of team you have that delivers all the products you want to be able to do. So the better you are, the better the products will be. So mm. we just that's the path. That's what we're really thinking about in a broader view. You know, this product stuff and technologies, but really yeah. the big broad vision is like what do we need to be better at? So what you can't do, which is bad, Everybody wants to see the big powerful CEO that walks in with a firm handshake and, you know, yeah. rides a horse or something and, you know, has a giant moustache or something. I'm not quite sure how yeah, it works. Yeah. But, but you know, my thinking is, well, actually, what, what's the, you know, what's the worst of who I am? What are, what's the baddest, like, weakest bits? How do I think about that? And what's the bits that are wrong? And you just keep working away at removing that. And that's what you do when you start. When you start, you start with nothing. So there's so much stuff to do, be better. But I don't think you can actually do anything great unless you start with failure. You have to start with nothing. Otherwise, you don't get it. And you don't know what the problems are to work. You know, I would have hated to have come out of, a, say, a formal business school and you just see everything as a bunch of metrics or something. It's much more better and much more gritty to actually just like really focus in on the things you don't know and what you aren't capable of doing than work those. I'm glad it never got spoon-fed to me. I had to learn all those lessons the hard way. So that's really, I think, the bigger picture of what I'm always thinking about. Amazing. And uh, where's the best place people can find out more about Blackmagic Design? Well, you can just sort of Google Blackmagic Design, but we have a, obviously a website with a lot of product information on the cameras and DaVinci Color Correction switches and all kinds of other product lines that, that do television work. So if you're interested in television work, you know, definitely check it out. Or if uh, we obviously have DaVinci Resolve, which you can actually download for free because um, we actually have a paid version of the product, but we also have a lot of hardware products that work around it. So that's how we make money to run that team. That means you can actually get it for free. So if you're starting out in television, definitely download it and check it out so you can do editing, color correction and audio and now visual effects in it. So that's pretty exciting. So there's no excuse not to get going if you, you know, your medium or, or business of choice is television. You know, go for it. That's my feeling. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Grant. No I really appreciate it, mate. Help. Great conversation. No worries, thank you. <laughs> hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.